so when it did happen, it was just a, a mind-blowing moment. Um, but we were not aware of whatever history and cracks had started to form within the company that that you know cascaded into to where it's at now. Like, welcome to Behind the Community podcast. I'm your host Michelle Sims, and on every episode, I'm going to take you on a journey with me to uncover the truth of what goes on behind the community. I'll be speaking with industry leaders from all over the world to help you become the best community builder out there. Over the past decade, I've launched and scaled more than 40 different communities from a 10-person book club to a million-person finance network. Now, I'm very excited to share today's podcast conversation with you. Simon Balmain is a senior community manager who has worked at several successful companies, including Twitter, Sphere Messenger, Monzo Bank, and the BBC. Our conversation covered what's going on at Twitter right now, how Simon got into community, first things he did at Monzo to activate the community, how being authentic and honest pays off, maintaining community growth within a scale up, hiring from your own community, making the leap to start your own business centered around community, Basically, a lot of things were covered. (laughs) Looking forward to it. Let's dive in. Heads up for anyone that's listening today. uh, This podcast was recorded a few weeks after the Twitter layoff. So we're going to be diving into the juicy stuff. Obviously, Simon, you've been mixed up in all of this. So let's hear from you and your version of events. Yeah, I mean, let let me... um... Let me just clarify one part to start with, because I think this has been confusing for a lot of people. I'm sort of, everybody in the UK pretty much uh, is sort of Schrodinger's employee right now in that we are both not working for Twitter and technically on one level still working for Twitter um, due to UK employment law stating that um, any UK company that lays off more than 100 people has to do a 45 day mandatory minimum consultation period before any severance negotiations start happening. so we're technically all on garden leave at the moment, um, locked out of all the systems. Um, and look, look, we see what's happening everywhere else. We know where this is headed. There's only one way that it's headed, but uh, for sort of purposes of, of how employment law works here, um, we, we, we are still technically employed by Twitter. Um, wow. So yeah, so it's, it's a weird, weird situation, but uh, that's, that's where so we're weird. at. <laughs> um, and yes, you are correct. It's been, it's been three weeks. Um, since he, he, he took over, um, two weeks since the first massive batch of, of layoffs and locking people out and, and whatnot, um, which is when uh, I was affected, uh, my whole team were affected that day. Um, the whole community's team pretty much gone as far as I can tell, um, but then particularly these last three weeks. Um, when there was this week period between him taking over the company and that first batch of layoffs and that was probably like that was probably the worst week because it there was no communication there was nothing from him or you know his people that he brought in in that week uh nobody knew what was going on anything that we did learn we learned along with everybody else in in the media and the press um and so to some degree like when actually like layoffs and stuff started happening like there actually was like an element of like relief to it because it's like it was almost like being trapped in this sort of like psyops like operation where you're just being like completely like like silenced and frozen you're getting nothing and you don't know what to do and um 
so yeah, it was it was weird. It was weird. But we're on the other side of it now, so we'll see see what happens. Wow. So you you knew it was coming, and you were just waiting for it to happen, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was saying to somebody the other day, if if I was to get laid off and nothing else about the company changed, like I'd be devastated, right? I'd be gutted. But to get laid off and your entire team is gone and that team's senior leader is gone and that senior leader's leader is gone, like all the way to the top, like all the way down, then it's like, well, what else could you do? Like mm. if I wasn't, I'd be there floating in the wind with like nobody. Um, so yeah, weird situation. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, I, I hope you're fine and you seem great. You just came from Edinburgh. <laughs> Maybe we can dive into kind of what got you to that this point now and mm. take a few steps back. Um, yeah. Where was the starting point for you? When, when did you find community? I mean, if we take it all the way back, then like literally when I was a kid, like yeah. early 2000s, um, find getting online and, and finding message boards about the stuff that I loved, um, primarily like like different music artists that, that I'm really into. And um, by the time I was a teenager, I was already moderating like OG message boards like that ran on and VBulletin and like all these like old school, like open source forum software um, and cutting my teeth on, on doing that as a you know, personal passion thing and to connect with people. Um, and I, I'm a musician as well. I signed to, uh, I signed my first record deal when I was 16 and then I signed to Sony for a major deal when I was 17 um, and spent over a decade touring the world. Um, with the band, we, even when we had major label deals, you know, we were with Sony for a while, we were with Virgin Universal for a while, but throughout that journey, we always had this sort of community-driven DIY punk ethic where as much as we could do in-house, we would do. So we managed our own um, you know, mailing lists and we had our own community forums and we had sort of early stage social media and um, you know, graduating into kind of the, new, the platforms that are kind of incumbents now um, to the point where uh, we were in, one time we were covered in Rolling Stone magazine and the headline is so funny and it, um, it's, it shows the sort, it's so dated now when you look back at it, but at the time it was like a very, very good headline. Um, and the headline when, when Rolling Stone wrote about us was music for the MySpace era. And so a big part of this article was about, you know, what we were doing on MySpace and we'd gotten to like number one on MySpace music and this, that and the other through our sort of in-house community building efforts. Um, so we were always really hot on that. And that was, that was, basically me doing like 95% of that work. What, um, was, um, what was some of the in-house like community uh, things you were doing at that time? So yeah, so we, we built our whole website from scratch and we, we built it using um, a very flexible CMS that allowed for user registration and user login and a sort of native uh, message board integration. Um, so we would, we would keep that all in house, um, connect it directly to our, our social media and our mailing lists and, and build up this sort of real level of audience ownership. Um, at a time when most bands were not doing that, they would leave that to the label and they'd be disconnected from it. Um, mm. but by doing that, we would be able to make these links between, you know, our, our super fans and, you know, when they would come to our gigs, we'd get to know them. We'd make that connection in real life and, and whatnot. They'd be out there spreading the word about us. We'd be doing giveaways. We'd be doing merch drops like 
we'd be like we were really in control of that whole pipeline. Um, so when at this time, being a community manager in I guess more professional fields and in tech fields like wasn't really as much of a thing. Like it wasn't there weren't really a lot of companies that were like yeah this is the thing that that we need that wouldn't happen for a few more years um but when i discovered monzo in right at the beginning so the company was founded in 2015 and i got on board in 2016 um when there was 35 to 40 staff um and maybe like 40 to 50,000 users um and over the course of of being at monzo for three and a half almost four years that grew to I don't know, a couple of thousand staff and like six million plus users like multiple yeah. offices multiple countries and so i was there through that that whole small startup to scale up to like hyper growth like stage like managing the community efforts there um and it, you know it wasn't dissimilar to all the work that i'd done in, in the music business it's just now that like it's a job at a company and you get you get paid quite a bit of money to do it um but it was it was the same the same process and, and it all comes down to like having um, having a strong like set of, of values and a vision as a company um, and aligning people around it right so one of the first things that I did at Monzo um, the the message board existed the forum existed before I joined but only just like it was set up like a few weeks before um, I joined and there was a great community manager called Najee that joined about a month before I had. Um, but one of the first things that I, that I did there was I said to Najee and, and Tristan, who was the marketing lead, um, I, want I want this message board, this hub, this community hub that we have to be a space for everybody that's interested in fintech not to, and not just to discuss fintech. So when, when I started there and it had been set up, it was purely like, it was almost just like a support board just to talk about Monzo. And I was like, this is not good enough. I, I, so I set up the general, general sort of off topic chat section. I set up the fintech chat to talk about other companies. Um, because my whole thing was like, we're trying to get people to connect with each other. We're not just trying to get them to connect with us. Like if you're just, if people are just connecting with us and it's not really community, it's just another broadcast marketing channel. And that's not what we're trying to do here. I don't think that's what we're trying to do here. Um, and Tom, this founder CEO, like he's great. Like if, if he was not an entrepreneur and not found and not founding companies, like he probably would have been a community manager. Like <laughs> he just gets it like instinctively. Um, so we had like, you know, top level buy-in from, from him to do what we wanted really. Um, so I, I really had this vision of, of wanting people to connect with each other over that one shared interest and over any other shared interest. So by setting up these kind of off topic sections and the FinTech chat sections, we were really able to position the Monzo forum as like the place for like all FinTech discussion, um, just by having that progressive attitude. And we were never adversarial um, uh, against anybody else in, in the industry even when some of those companies were very adversarial towards us. Um, and I think that annoyed some of those other companies because uh, often you would find that if you were Googling other FinTech companies, you would come across a discussion on the Monzo forum um, and they didn't really know how to deal with that. Um, so, you know, and, and as I said, you know, we were, we were never aggressive or adversarial towards them. So it, it wasn't something that was hurting them. Um, but at the same time, it was not something that was within their control and certain types of leaders in 
bad leadership styles, uh, maybe yeah. a bit more old school, they dislike that. Um, they dislike not being in control of that conversation. Um, yeah, I definitely feel like marketing, <laughs> marketing people, no offense. <laughs> there is this level of like how to control the narrative, how to make yeah. sure that, you know, the right message is being fed. And I think communities like yourself, like community managers really know how to give that control back and allow the community to grow and 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 build that themselves because that's really where the magic happens. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were people that were part of uh, the Monzo community posting, if not every day, then at least you know, active every week that weren't Monzo customers. They were Revolut customers or Starling customers or whoever else, but they appreciated this, this place that we had built. Mm. And we always said to everybody, like we would get people in who would say, oh, you know, um, uh, I, I like what Monzo's doing, but the feature set that I really need is X, Y, and Z, and you're not doing that, and you know, maybe Revolut is doing that, or Starling is doing that, or whoever else is doing that. And we would always say, you know, if another if another company suits your needs, then by all means go and use them. Like we're not gonna we're not gonna sit here and tell you not to do that or to try and convince you to stay with us if we're not offering something that you need. But what we will do is we'll be honest with you about if we are gonna do those things that, that you want us to do and that you need, and if we're not, we're gonna to explain to you why those things are not priorities for us right now based upon what we're trying to do and why other things are in just a totally open way. Mm. Um, and if it turns out that you wanna use another product, by all means, go do it. Um, so. Yeah, well, it definitely, from an outside perspective, we always could see that there was such a belonging for anyone that was a part of a Monzo community, you know, they would say, I'm part of the Monzo community. Like they would identify with your community as being part of, you know, their, their identity. Um, and one of the first like FinTech campaigns that anyone described to me was uh, a, a, a Monzo campaign where you guys you know, got your first like 50 users in a room and, you know, talked about the Monzo card. Everyone got a free fluoro card and they all put you know 10 pounds or 100 pounds on that then and there in that room and they left the room with a card and a you know and you guys had new customers yeah um, yeah absolutely i mean this is this is this is literally why i joined the company um i i never i never had a particular interest particularly in finance more so than any other sector and in fact if you asked people like my family and friends if they you know back in the day if they ever saw me working for like a bank or a you know, money institution they would have said absolutely not right but when I found the product and was impressed by the product and then went on the website saw the community forum was a thing that existed saw that approach of starting with these small-scale community events and you know Tom just hanging out in a room with like you know 30 or 40 mm -hmm. people and explaining the vision I was like this is cool like I've never seen I've never seen a bank like do this before Right. And which is why it worked. Right. It's, you know, everybody in this country, at least, was used to like these hundreds of years old, like Barclays and, you know, RBS and whoever else stuffy suit wearing. Like you don't know who works there. You have no idea what their values are or, you know, they're, they're, they haven't kept up with technology. They have terrible apps and they still do. Um, and it, it was just such a breath of fresh air. Like people like from Jump were saying, like, you know, this is almost like the Spotify approach or like the Uber approach to like really having something slick and fast and, and useful and, and you know where it's going. And yeah, so that was what kind of turned me onto it and made me want to work there. 
so you were really part of that like big transition from little company to to big scale up to to mega scale up how was that transition for you as especially as the community grew how were you able to to kind of keep that authentic sense of belonging that whole way through well one thing i i, I was very hyper aware of um from the beginning was that as a community manager for a huge amount of customers and the most engaged customers, you're effectively the face of the company, the voice of the company, just as much as your CEO or whoever's running your social or who's doing your marketing, like in, in a lot of cases, like more so. So I wanted to counter that by saying like, this is not about me. It's about everybody here. And it's about all of you, the customers as well. Like it's that these are equal things to me. Like I'm not here like, delivering like edicts and like telling you from the top of a mountain like what's going on and that's not how this is going to work so i started the um um the staff q a um thing that we did which ran for i think 55 to 60 sessions i think we did overall and so every week i would really go out of my way because even, even when you're even when you're a company that puts community first that still doesn't mean that like everybody within the company like gets that because you have such a wide variety of jobs and for most people it's actually not a part of the day-to-day -day. like as long as the ceo gets it and you have top level buy-in and you have a great team and they get it then you can run with that but but um you know most people in the company are not going on there every day and, and reading stuff and, and and you know replying to people certainly not so when i i ran that um the q a series every week i go to different parts of the company and just find as many people as I could, like as wide of a group of people as possible from every single part of the company to say, look, you know, this week you're going to come in and you're going to take these questions from the users and we're going to do a Q&A and they're going to learn about what you do. And so by doing that, we really got people to understand like how a company operates in a way that a community of users would probably not know otherwise. Um, and it was good for me to build up my relationships across the company cross-functionally so that any time on any given day there were specific questions about whether it was design or engineering or business operations or anything else like I know who to go to like I can I can be that that sort of conduit for those questions and keep the community in the loop as much as I possibly can which is what they want right I always said to people like there's there's a lot of um, people in, in who work in different parts of the company who think that maybe the community is not interested in what I do. And I was like, they are, like they really are. Like they're here, they've, they've got this, this emotional connection to us now. Like they're part of our community. We're part of their, it's part of their identity that they use our service. So yeah, of course they're interested in what you do. And, and, and invariably they always were. Like every, every session we did had such great questions and people you know, came to it with a great deal of enthusiasm. Um, I can see that, that would have both effects as well. Like not only on the internal team being able to to share really the the goals and the vision and and what they've built so far and and what they're planning on doing but also on the other end it's like a perk you can see a sneak peek into a brand that you have this sense of connection with um, and maybe the, there's a, even like an opportunity for upskilling and as well from yeah, their point of absolutely. view. Absolutely. And we hired people from the community like multiple <laughs> times, probably at least a dozen times. Um, and people that, that went on to do amazing things within within the company. Um, 
there's an there's an engineer. She's now at Apple. Uh, I don't know if you know her. Her name's Rika, um, and Rika was um, part of the Monzo Forum very very early on. Came to events, all sorts, and we didn't actually know that she was a, um, a an engineer at the time for for a while. Um, and when she actually ended up applying to the company, we already knew her from from the events and being part of the forum and we were like you know because people recruiters need to know (laughs) yeah absolutely and it's an extra it's an extra data point right for 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 culture interviews you know uh, Mm. companies like this you tend to have your your culture interview and your kind of technical interview or or whatever it might be and it if people were coming through that sort of forum pipeline and been very active we almost didn't need to do the culture interview we're like yeah we already know who you are and what you're about and that you fit in here so Love that. And I guess a bit more of a heavier question for as you're kind of growing as a scale up, what was the most important measure of success um, for you when you were working on the forums, on the the events? Um, Yeah. Um, I guess the most important measure of success for me um, was that that level of, of consistent enthusiasm and engagement and participation um, scaled uh, not scaled with user growth because that's never going to happen um, when you go from like 50,000 to 6 million you're not going to you know have that same level of more people that are engaged with, with what you're doing but the quality of the people that do that's, that's the important thing so. cool right, let's move on to the next part of your story mm-hmm. um, Sphere which yes. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about it and how you you got started. Mm. So um, I can't really talk about getting into Sphere without talking about leaving Monzo. Um, (laughs) So I'd been at Monzo for almost four years at this point and uh, stuff, when, when you scale that quickly, it's almost like you become a new company every six months and you have it's very hard to manage and and just like with engineering when you get what they call tech debt you get culture debt right where stuff that you didn't prioritize or or didn't have the time to stay on top of for other things as you're scaling up it becomes more and more and more of a problem and stuff starts to break in the culture and i think there was a point where the community-led efforts began breaking down um and I've, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why that was. And part of the reason, part of the reason that I think it happened is also the reason why I've never been able to fully understand why it happened. Is, so that sounds a bit paradoxical, but it, it's that people shut themselves off and stopped participating in those conversations or had conversations about other people behind closed doors about, you know, the structure of the company and people's roles and what would happen. And um, it ended up being, you'd get a lot of sort of whispers about this happening or that happening and, and they'd get filtered through like five different people and nobody really knew what was going on and promises were made that were not kept and, and this, that and the other. And it just became very, very difficult to deal with. Um, and I think also what, what I learned um, later on after I'd left, um, because after I left about two or three months after I left, Tom stepped down, the um, founder and co-founder and original CEO. And what I realized was that 
that wasn't an out of the blue decision. That was a descending level of of um, his mental health and his ability to run the company in the same way that he had started it and wanted to over time, which was also why some of these problems started happening that affected other people and uh, and you know like myself and. Um, so when I made the decision to leave, um, one thing that I was hyper aware of at that point that I, it's not that I disliked it, but it was a difference between me and a lot of people who were at the company at that time. I joined Monzo when it was a new company and it was an unproven company and there was uh, an element of risk to it. Um, and it, and it, nobody knew if it was going to work. By the time I left, a lot of a lot of people at the company joined the company because it was a sure thing. It was a successful company, um, and and that that plays into people's personalities and their decisions to stay or or leave at the right time. Right um, when something's like a sure bed and it's successful, you know, people maybe stay when when they shouldn't or you know, leave and under all sorts of different circumstances. Um, but I'm al I've always been a, a risk taker. So I thought, you know, I'm not going to stay here because it's a sure bed and because of, you know, sunk cost fallacy. And, you know, I've spent so much time building this, that therefore I should stay. Like, that's, if I'm not happy, then I'm not happy. Um, and so I got a message from uh, a lady named Kiri. Um, and it basically said, I work at a stealth startup that is run by Nick Diologio. Uh, we're interested in talking to you. And this comp's fear was in so, it was so much in stealth at that time that there was nothing. There was no LinkedIn, there was no website, there was no socials, nothing. But I knew, I knew of Nick because Nick was, Nick was a legend in the UK tech scene based upon his first company, Sumly, which he founded when he was like, 15 he was the youngest person to get vc money when he was 15 and then he sold it to yahoo for 30 million when he was 17 and he became like the youngest sort of exiting startup founder to 15. make ridiculous money <laughs> like in the that, and he got all this crazy press um they were calling him like you know uh, the uk's mark zuckerberg and you know, this was in like the early 2010s so back when people actually liked mark zuckerberg <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, it was a flattering comparison at, at that time um and so I, I knew from all that. So I thought I'm interested in, you know, meeting Nick and figuring out what he's doing and you know, I'm aware of him and that's, that's good enough for me. Um, so I, I was, so I messaged her and Kiri and I was like, yeah, I'll, you know, set up a meeting. I'll come. And I met Nick, I met his co-founder, Tomash, um, the head of marketing at Sphere was a lady named Catherine, um, and the COO, Jeff, who came from Stack Overflow. Jeff was like a C-suite executive at Stack Overflow. Um, so obviously like that's one of the most impressive examples of, of community that's ever happened like online. Um, and I was, I was blown away with, with the vision that they laid out, um, and what they wanted to do with Sphere. And I said to them, this company is completely in stealth. I operate completely in the open and I build in public. Like, I'm guessing that's what you want from me, right? You want me to get you out of stealth. Um, and that's what that's what it was. So over the the course of of uh, you know however long I worked there, I can't even, like almost two years. I think it was like eighteen months. That's what we did. We built this user community in our our beta app. Um, we built up the website and the social media and LinkedIn, and we had a discourse forum and 
you know, getting all this stuff done, building this really kind of early cohort of, of, um, of beta users. Um, at which point, about a year and a half ago, end of summer 2021, um, Nick sort of dropped this bombshell on us that, that Twitter wanted to buy Sphere. Um, and that it, it seemed to make sense. Um, I think we ha we there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get talked about with acquisitions. Um, so one thing that I do want to make clear is that we we had a lot of runway. Like we didn't need to sell. Um, we could have we had enough runway for another eighteen months before even needing to do more fundraising. And you know Nick's reputation could have landed another round. I just think that he didn't really want to go through that process. Um, so. It, it was it was the right move at the time. Obviously, like now, it seems like a bit ridiculous. But who knew who knew all this would happen? Um, and we were all very excited about it. My, I, I very much got the um, the impression from Nick and, and everybody else that I spoke to that this was a big priority for Twitter at the time. They had just sort of not long ago announced at, at that time that they were going to move forward with, with Twitter communities and you know part of buying sphere was to sort of double the size of the team that was working on that um, we got the sense that that the, the people that were at the top of the chain product wise at the time which was Kayvon, um and Jack uh, were very invested in this this deal and you know very keen for it to happen um, and it and it did seem like like that when like the uh, and it was only in the sort of months that followed that that it all sort of began to to fall apart with, you know, first Jack left, um, Parag came in as CEO, he fired Kayvon, um, Elon makes his original offer in April, like, it's just like a roller coaster of, like, ridiculous things, none of which any of us could have foreseen at the time that we agreed to do that acquisition and we all started working at Twitter. Um so yeah, it's but, a crazy so, ride. Yeah, it's a crazy ride. I mean, thinking from like, would you ever have thought you would be in this position from being a musician? No. To, <laughs> to, to working for one of the, like one is one of the most well-known brands in the world. Like if not. Yeah, absolutely not. Like I, I've, I've been a Twitter user since 2007. I first set up the band account at the end of 2007. So like a year after the service launched, I set up my personal music account in 2008. And it's pretty much been the first install on any device that I get like since then. Um, but working for Twitter, it just, it sounds weird, but it just like never occurred to me. It's just like, it's just like, no, I don't even know if they, if they have people that do what I do or if that's a done. just never even thought about it. It just, it just seemed like a, I mean, I could say it seems like a ridiculous thing, but that would imply that I thought about it, and I just hadn't. It just never yeah. occurred to me. Um, so when it so so when it did happen, it was just a, a mind blowing moment. Um, but we were not aware of whatever history and cracks had started to form within the company that that you know cascaded into to where it's at now. Like, which is not something that we were aware of. Maybe you could explain a bit more about the overall goal of Sphere and then how that really played into the goals of Twitter. Um, so the goal of Sphere was was to create this sort of global community brain 
right? The next generation of community connection, the, the paradigm of which um, started with, with group chat and, and a live um, group chat feel and levels of ephemerality with the conversations that would appear and, and disappear as they were, um, as they would sort of expire and, and new ones would pop into your feed and, and whatnot. Um, the goals were for it, for it to be useful uh, and vibrant, right? So it had to be equally useful to the people within these communities and, and fun um, in a way that actually our, our entire sort of tech stack on the back end and on the front end and in terms of the UX of the app was actually a lot better than Twitter, but we just didn't have 300 million users, right? It was a, a very modern, very responsive, very slick, very fluid app with lots of little fun you know, Easter eggs and animations and movements and things that you could do and ways that you could react things. Um, I think the closest, the closest app that um, exists now that is comparative to Sphere is probably Geneva. Um, I don't know if you've used Geneva, um, but they, we, we sort of did see them as a, um, a sort of competitor, if you will, of somebody doing the same thing, which we loved because it validated our reason for being. Yeah, if there's nobody else doing what you do, that's a bad sign. Um, and and now they've sort of evolved to do a lot of the things that I think we would have also done if we had continued working on Sphere. Um, so when when it came to Twitter, I remember there was there was a lot of it. It didn't affect my job because my job is to deliver on the goals and the values to be that conduit between the team building it and the people using it. But certainly the engineers that were working that moved over. Um, had a, a quite a steep learning curve and quite a bit of frustration in that this massive behemoth company is using this core tech stack that's actually pretty dated compared to what we were just doing. And so it's much harder to build on it compared to what we've been used to for the past few years. Um, and it, from, a, from a sort of front end perspective and my participation perspective, um, going from having this very live with ephemerality and, and reactive um, paradigm back to this kind of tweet paradigm where there's like time in between and it's, it's not, it's not live that, you know, th that was a different approach to how I had been managing community for a few years that I had to get into, but it was mitigated by the fact that there was just so many people, so many users. Right. Um, and, there were there were projects in Twitter um, to move communities into a, a more responsive live direction by pulling out some of the framework that DMs uses um, and and finding out how to implement that into the um, community structure. Um, but obviously that's probably not happening now. <laughs> Everyone that worked on, was working on it is no longer there. So, um, yeah. and what and what do you think that means for Twitter communities? Is is it going to die? Like, what do you think will happen? I don't know that anybody in the new administration is even aware of it at this point. I just have no idea. And if they are aware of it, I suspect it's not a priority at any point to them. Um, the economics of of how um, Elon Musk and his people have structured this deal means that it's it's key for them to figure out things that make revenue very quickly um, and certainly in that week 
between him taking over the company and, and laying a bunch of people off, even though we were not getting communication, the stuff that was getting filtered through from his people to the product leaders was very much in that direction of like, what's the thing that's going to bring in revenue like as quickly as possible? Like, that's the thing. Um, so, but then somebody else also asked me, they were, they've asked me before, like, do you think that like Twitter communities will shut down? And the thing is, to sunset or to deprecate a product requires that you understand how that product was built, right? It's not like it's just a switch that you can turn off, like it's integrated into the, you know, the entire architecture of how Twitter works at this point. So somebody, given that almost everybody that worked on communities, as far as I can tell, is no longer there, it's at this point, if you were to deprecate it, it's a lot of additional resource that they don't want to put into that. So it would require a bunch of new engineers and people to figure out how this was done and then to take it apart without affecting everything else. Um, so my gut feeling is that however the product looks right now is how it's going to look indefinitely. It's going to be, I mean, it, it's going to be so hard to see that thing you built just be there and you can't, you know, you can't change it. Um, with Twitter being the, you know, one of the largest companies in the world and seeing like a leader like Elon Musk make a decision to fire a whole entire community team from that company, what do you think that means for the future of community? Do you think there'll be this knock-on effect for the rest of community? Yeah, I'd love to get your insight. I think the scale of the scale of these layoffs in combination with the people that then were presented with this decision to either stay or leave and a huge amount of them have chosen to leave the scale of that you're talking I don't know like eight nine thousand plus people and I said to someone today it was never it was never about the product, it was always about the people. And everybody that I worked with was a domain expert, like a subject matter expert in whatever job that they did, like everybody. So this layoff, it's like a moment in history for the tech industry as a whole, because you've all of a sudden got all of these incredible people and who knows where, where everybody's gonna go at this point. Like there's gonna be probably dozens of startups founded at this point from one or multiple people that have been affected by this. There's going to be people that bring this insane amount of domain knowledge to thousands of other companies. And it only takes the right person in the right place to like take a company from here to like here. Like I've seen it happen. Um, it's, it's really going to go down as a sort of marking point in, in history. And I think that applies to community just as much as it does to, to any other, um, field that existed within the company so yeah i don't i don't um i have no decision on any individual place that i'm going next i, I have a i'm very thankful to have a linkedin inbox that's full <laughs> full of everybody that you could think of from recruiters to founders to established ceos um and that's that's a really it's it's a great position to be in um to sort of the silver lining of this whole thing, I guess. Um, but, you know, it, it gives me the ability to be discerning, um, to really talk to a lot of people and understand 
the values and the missions of, of whatever products are being built out there and to make a decision about where I can bring the most value and and have the best work-life balance and, and be the most fulfilled in, in what I do. Um, and who, wherever that ends up being is TBD, but yeah, it'll be fun to find out. <laughs> cool. Well, I mean, I'm going to be following along and I know that anyone else listening will definitely um, love to hear where you go next. So yeah, I think it's a, it's an exciting time because you've been released into the world and you and so many other incredible community um, managers, builders, product people, event people, I'm sure, just incredible people that were working at Twitter are now available and on the market. Um, too bad Absolutely. for Elon. <laughs> he's going to miss out. Well, he made his bed. He's going to have to lie in it. <laughs> so no regrets. No regrets getting bought by Twitter along the no. way. No. Um, I don't um, I don't tend to live with regrets as a sort of general rule of life. I think um, everything that has happened was meant to happen and is the leader to the next part of your journey. Um, and it's like um, it's like John Lennon said, he said, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. So I just roll with it. I take each day as it comes and whatever comes my way is the path that I was meant to go down. Um, We'll see where it leads me next so yeah <laughs> thank there and thank you so much for speaking to me thank you so much for sharing so much what's going on in your own life and and oh, my pleasure. what led you to where you are now and thanks for coming with me behind the community if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I'd also love to hear from you on LinkedIn. You can search Michelle Sims to find me. I'll see you on the next episode.